Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. A tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's up? What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. We have an incredibly special show for you today, Judd Apatow in conversation with David Duchovny. Joining me to introduce this episode... Nick Dawson, editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, longtime fan of both these gentlemen, and psyched that we have such a great talk with these amazing men. This great talk was recorded live at the incredible Murmur Ballroom in Brooklyn in collaboration with Park Slope's Community Bookstore. And this is part of the uh, Murmur Lit series, right? Yes, speaking of which, tune in next month, listeners, for another episode from that series where we present George Saunders and Dana Spiotta in conversation. It's always been great working with Murmur. I know they were so helpful putting this episode together. And I know you've also done some really cool stuff with them outside of TalkHouse. Yes, when I was curating Pitchfork's Inside Out series, I brought in uh, Bjork, Niall Rogers, and Tori Amos for different events there. It's a very cool lineup. Yeah, and, and it's a really cool setup. Murmur actually shares its space with an active synagogue. As you can hear uh, Judd and David refer to in their conversation. Yep. And uh, looking at the schedule, they have some really cool events coming up with Josh Ritter, the Secret Sisters, Moom, and Tindersticks, which is Ah, kind of like... Tindersticks are coming back. Bands that I have loved for many years. Amen. What brought today's talk together is in many ways the connective tissue between David Duchovny and Judd Apatow, which was Gary Shandling, the late, great comedy legend who was such a a formative figure uh, for many uh, comedians coming up through the industry, as Judd was, and through particularly the Larry Sanders show, connected with so many people in entertainment, including David Duchovny. And the reason that they were talking about him and hold him in such great reverence is that not only was he a comedy genius, but he was also somebody who was, you know, a great mentor, a great friend to so many people, and a really fascinating person. Like his his Buddhism in particular is something that they focus on quite a bit. And his work and his life were really defined by a wisdom and introspection that was very rare. Shandling came up in the industry as a stand-up and writer for television shows like Sanford and Son and Welcome Back Cotter in the mid-70s, but he didn't really become a household name until his sitcom It's Gary Shandling Show, which debuted on Showtime in 86. Yeah, in his conversation with David, Judd talks about how with It's Gary Shandling Show and The Larry Sanders Show, his TV show in the 90s, he kind of gave everything of himself. Like, he just put all of him into those shows. And they are these, you know, incredibly complete and amazing and and very different comedic enterprises that made Shandling this enormous star. I mean, for me, The Larry Sanders Show and Seinfeld were sort of like the pinnacle of mainstream comedy in, in the 90s. And I just remember sort of marveling at the fact that cerebral, provocative, sort of envelope-pushing comedy could be as widely embraced in the U.S. as it was. Shandling passed away in 2016, and Judd has really been memorializing him since. At first, that took the form of the HBO documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling, that followed his life and career and was based on his personal diaries. Just last year, It's Gary Shandling's book came out that was edited by Judd, who also wrote an introduction. And the book includes some of Shandling's journal entries, photos, and contributions from Shandling's peers. If you watch enough documentaries about Hollywood, you'll come across stories about Shanling's basketball game that he would have at his house. 
And it's great because we get to hear some lovely stories about that. But he was somebody who just really welcomed this really wide range of people within the comedy community into his life and just was somebody who really included others. It was very powerful to hear about the personal relationships that both Judd and David had with Gary. Yeah, David talks about introducing him to yoga and boxing and we get some amazing stories there. I mean, for me, like the thing that comes through, which I, I already knew about him, is that A, he was this incredible joke writer, but also when Judd is reading some of the diary entries that he wrote, I mean, there's incredible wisdom there. There really is. One thing that was really neat for me in this talk, Nick, was getting to hear about how both Judd and David first met and connected with Gary. Judd talks about... Of course, we know him as the guy who did 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, This Is 40, and, and more recently he's producing stuff like Crashing and, and Love. But back in the 90s, before anybody knew who he was, he was like this precocious, brilliant joke writer who Shandling took under his wing. And we hear some great stories about them working together on The Larry Sanders Show and also when Gary Shandling was presenting uh, the Grammys one year, which is the moment that they first really connected. And then David Duchovny is, of course, the star of Californication. And before that, The X-Files, a great story there is that David brought Gary Shandling on to play himself on the show. Yeah, which is hilarious. And apparently, according to David anyway, when they first met, Gary had absolutely no idea who David was, even though <laughs> David's people had told him it was the opposite. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's so many great stories in this. Should we roll the tape? Let's roll the tape. It's nice to be a temple with you, David. <laughs> it's kind of a dream come true. We all knew it would end here. Um, what are we going to do? I have to time this so that we... Uh, are you recording this? I always record everything. I'm a hoarder. That's why we made the book. <laughs> How do you want to do this, David? We haven't really planned it. Well, that's, that's apparent now, isn't it? It's kind of a Gary thing to do, to try to be in the moment and not really plan it and just yeah. see how it feels. You know, once I was in Gary's kitchen, and he remember that leather satchel that he had, that mm -hmm. big bag that he yes. would carry around? It had, it had about $10,000 worth of cash in it. I really? know that. <laughs> but I, I got a glimpse inside it, and it was so hectic and, and filled with odds and ends of, of life. And Gary saw me look inside the bag, and he shut it, and he said, no, no, no. <laughs> You're not supposed to see that. So we can start there. Why do you think he, why do you think he needed $10,000? No, I just made that up. But he always, <laughs> Gary always had cash, didn't he? He always he had was, a lot of He cash. was a cash guy. He liked to have cash. Now, David and I met at Gary's basketball game when we were doing uh, the Larry Sanders show. Gary wanted to play basketball to... Uh, you know, have a world of friends separate from the stress of his work. Yeah. Uh, in a way, it was almost like recreating something he wanted in childhood that maybe he didn't get. And I would call people up in the beginning and try to get them to show up. I think we also knew that George Clooney had a game <laughs> and we wanted to be like George Clooney. Yeah, we wanted to be better. And then David showed up and David really can play basketball. You played for Princeton, well, right? Not, not like Clooney. 
Yeah, not like Clooney. He's he's very good. <laughs> and I remember when you showed up, and it was scary because you like know how to play and and <laughs> the I, nerve. And then Alan Zweibel, who created It's Gary Shandling Show, fell on me once and dislocated my shoulder, and I never played again. Uh, it's good times. I remember Gary used to like just go over the rules. Of course, Wayne Fetterman was the commissioner. Yes. But Gary had the rules, and the last line of the rules was, "And my head is in." <laughs> it was always about not getting hit in the face. That was an important part of any show business basketball game. Sandler always says that. He's like, don't hit the face. The face <laughs> is the money. Sandler's oddly physical out there, though. Yeah. He's a beast. He, he's more serious than... He likes, to, he likes to work in the paint. It was also a weird game because it would change who was playing every week. And like one week you're covering uh, <laughs> Clint Black. And the next week it's... Brad Pitt, yeah. <laughs> and then it's Al Franken, and then it's Sarah Silverman. It was rotated. Yeah, I'd like to be in that locker room, you know, when the coach is talking about how we're going to D up Brad Pitt and Clint Black <laughs> and Sarah so Those X's and O's. You know? yeah. I want to hear Phil Jackson talk about make Brad Pitt go left. <laughs> David, tell me, <laughs> when did you meet Gary? It was when we, we were doing the Larry Sanders show. I wrote yeah. the episode yeah. that you were on, and, and I think the, Thank you. the premise was that you were on the show and he didn't know who you were for the no, first meeting. No, that wasn't meeting. the premise. That was, it was actually, that was the truth. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were on the X-Files and Gary actually didn't really watch a lot of stuff. He was... Well, he didn't be, watch the X-Files. Yeah, yeah. I know but, that. But I remember once I was with Gary, he was getting interviewed by Howard Stern for the E! interview show. And then Gary talked to uh, this uh, singer. Um, God, I'll never remember his name either. And then Gary talked for like 15 minutes and the second he walked out, Gary's like, who's that? Who's that? Who was I just talking to? No. Richard Marks. <laughs> no, I got, I, 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 I talked to my agents and I said, I, I wanted to do two things in my hiatus that year. I wanted to be on SNL and I wanted to be on Sanders. And because I was obsessed with, I would get the VHS tapes up in Vancouver where I was shooting. And I'd, I'd watch them. And uh, so they, they told me, oh, yeah, you're going to go on Sanders. And Gary loves you. That's what they said. <laughs> Gary loves you. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, uh, I got there. And it was a, a scene like this. It was the talk show part. I got there early. And I was sitting in the audience kind of in the back watching Gary do a fake interview with somebody. And he got up and walked around a couple times around the whole audience. And he walked by me and clearly <laughs> had no idea. <laughs> why I was there or who I was. So then time passed and we went to do a scene in the hallway. And uh, we met and we did the scene. And, and I tell you this in all sincerity, and I don't know if I've ever told you, but because it was very moving to me at the time. And uh, we did a take and Gary kind of, he said, cut. And he kind of looked at me like, he said, how old are you? <laughs> and I said, 33. And he said, what took you so long? Uh, and it was like, yeah, I just felt like, wow, that was a beautiful moment for me. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a look at um, a piece of, the, of an episode with you and Gary. Now, you had an interesting You'll see what took arc. me so long. You had an interesting arc because it was like a man crush type of relationship on the show. Yes. Did that reflect life, or how did that come about? No, I, I don't remember exactly how it came about, but I said 
I said, I think it's funny. It would be funny if I had a crush on you, but it wasn't sexual. And he said, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, but I think it's funny. I think it's funny. Like what, you know, let's, I think it's funny. And, uh, and he said, okay, well, we can do something like that. And then, uh, and we did that first one. And then it was actually, you know, the Golden Globes or whatever. He came, I, was in, I had to be in a hotel and he came over to visit and I was in a robe. Yeah. When he, after the award ceremony, I was getting ready for bed. I was in a robe. And then I said, wouldn't it be funny if I, you know, did the <laughs> Sharon Stone thing, yeah. you know? So, so, but that was the thing with, with Gary, as you know. Well, like you would just, just pitch shit at him and then yeah. some of it would stick and he would know what, w what would work. And yeah, he was open to any great idea. So let's take a look at the clip number, uh, number one here. <laughs> Hey, could you uh, give Larry and I just a minute? Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Thanks. You're not upset that I'm taking Carol to the beach, are you? Don't be silly. Of course not. She's a nice girl. Oh, good. Well, I'm sorry I'm not going to be on the show with you. What are you talking about? Oh, my agent called, said the network went ballistic, and uh, they put me back on with Jon Stewart. God damn it. Shit. Wow, you they're just not supposed to do that. Oops. God damn it! God, you're really upset, aren't you? You really care about me, don't you? Are you uncomfortable? A little bit. Okay. I'll see you. See you later. Bye. <laughs> So when we were doing the, the last episode of the series, one of the premises was that he was trying to have the best final episode, and it was a lot about booking the final episode. And this next clip is uh, Larry visiting you, trying to get you to do the final episode of The Larry Sanders Show. There he is. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Come on in. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. God, you look great. Thank you. Your hair looks great. Tay here? Tay, uh, she went golfing. Really? Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. You look great. Thanks, so do you. I mean, appreciate whatever it. you're doing. Yeah. You working out? A little bit. What's up? <sighs> you're not going to believe this. So we have this big, you know, final show tonight, and Kevin Costner drops out. Oh, shit. And, you know, it's the last night of the show, so... Would it be imposing uh, to ask you if you would do the show? You know, I've, I've actually been wanting to be on the last show very much, and I'm, I'm glad that uh, you finally asked me. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, I heard you got rid of Stevie Grant. I did? Yeah. His behavior was so detestable. Is that a word? What'd I say? You said his behavior was detestable. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> I meant despicable. Yeah. Hey, uh, can I have some fruit? Yeah. Appreciate oh. it. <laughs> You've never seen Larry Sanders with people. I haven't. That's it's, exciting, it's, wasn't it? It's that was super, fun. It's super exciting. It is funny. We never knew it was funny before. <laughs> Can I, can I bring you all to my house? Yeah. <laughs> How was it shooting with Gary? Because that last episode, 
uh, was very intense, you know, because it was almost like Gary was having a little bit of a of a mental break because he was ending the show. Yeah. And it was a long final episode. And right before we shot that uh, scene, you know, Gary started melting down about the last scene of the show, which was like this eight-page scene between him and Rip Torn and Hank, where they just talk about everything. And, and he just goes into the writer's room and he's like, we, let's just cut it in half right now. Let's just cut it in half. And I'm like, Gary, it will literally take us for three and a half hours to figure out how right. to cut it in half. Just, just shoot it. And that, that'll be enough. And uh, we'll, we'll cut it in post. And then they went and him and Jeffrey and Rip shot the last scene in one, one take. take yeah. And then yeah. looked at each other and like, yeah, that was it. And they just walked away. Uh, and it, it, was, it was pretty wild. Yeah. The whole week was weird because there was a moment where he said goodbye to the audience. He did a very like Johnny Carson-like looking to the camera, thanking them for all their years watching the show. And the crowd was filled with extras, and it's people you pay to be in the crowd. And they just were there like, dead. <laughs> and Gary just started yelling at uh, the crew, just like, why the fuck do we have these people here? They're staring at me like fucking skeletons. What is this? He's like, get in the fuck out of here. I'll do it with no one there. Get in the out of there. And, uh, and he's really having a hard time because the show is ending and it's his whole life. Right. And then he did it again. He did like looked into camera and had this very emotional... Uh, scene, but it was uh, that last episode, you know, it's scary when you do a last episode because you know it, you're really going for greatness on the last one, and Gary said, you know, let's, let's try to get Jim Carrey to do it, and uh, we had been trying for six years to get Jim to do it. He would put it off, and, and I called Jim, I'm like, Jim, you can't put it off. I mean, this is like, it's, it's over. You know, and he's like, okay, I'll do it, but you just have to promise me that I'll be the best guest star that's ever been on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and he had that funny run, Jim, which is Gary was, you know, Larry Sanders is ending his show and Jim's kissing his ass like, you're the best. Oh my God, thank you. And then they cut to commercial and Jim's like, what are you going to do now? Movies? I'll destroy you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> was it fun to do the show with Gary, like to act with Gary? Oh yeah. I mean, it was... I mean, as you know, I mean, he was so tortured uh, about his own performance and his own his own writing. So there was always a, a sense in which, you know, that I wouldn't want to take care of him, you know, yeah. like his feelings. You know, I wanted him to take care of me, yeah. you know, like guest starring like in his world. So it's like you were always very aware that he was continually questioning. Yes. You know, every take, every line, every moment was, mm -hmm. was, was, was and that's the wonderful thing. I mean, that's why. Have you met other people like that? Have I met other people like that? Who are, uh, who are tortured like that and obsessive. And he's a genius, so it's not like he's wrong for judging it, but it, it's really uh, uh, obsessive. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I've, I've worked with some obsessive people, but none, none as, as seemingly uh, harsh on, on themselves as Gary was. Yeah. And, and it was distressing because you wanted to say, you're amazing, I love you. What you're doing is, is phenomenal, you know, yes. and... and, and as we talked about before, he, he, his scripts were just, they were mazes of notes. Every, every line, every, every, the whole, every page of the script was just covered in his acting notes and, and yeah. notes to himself. Uh, yeah. and, and there's just no way you could put all that shit in, in that. I mean, there was five hours of notes on this one page of dialogue. And it's like, you just wanted to, you know, when he would let loose, you know, then there would be a different mode that would happen, and you wanted to see that as well. Yeah. I met him when I was a kid. 
I wrote jokes for the Grammys for him was when I first met him. And I, it was the first night of the Gulf War. And, and someone said, Gary needs jokes. And I'm like, oh, shit, I better write a lot of jokes for Gary. Because uh, I wanted to get in with him. I wanted him to, like, need me. And so I wrote, like, 100 jokes. And then the next day we went over the jokes. And every joke, he didn't like the punchline, but he liked the setup. <laughs> Because he didn't really know anything about music. And I would say, oh, we should do something about, right. you know, Metallica. And he'd be like, who's Metallica? <laughs> and then I would explain the band, and then right. he would write a better, a better joke for it. And right. I think he just liked that I could provide that service. And I seemed to be writing down everything he was saying. I felt like my typing was, was why <laughs> I, I got there. And so I guess he thinks I'm doing a good job. So he says, I'll take you to New York to be at the Grammys, and I've never done anything. And now we're rehearsing, and I'm, you know, Bruce Springsteen is there. I'm like, Gary, we gotta take a picture with Bruce Springsteen. He's like, I'm not taking pictures with people. I'm like, Gary, let's take a picture with Bruce Springsteen. And so I have this like really creepy picture of me and him and Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Both of them look so unhappy to be in the picture with me. <laughs> Jody Watley's in the background. And, um, and so that we're rehearsing, you know, there's rehearsals, and it's, it, it's so exciting. One day we sit with Dennis Miller, who's helping us write jokes, and Dennis Miller says, uh, you should do something about Sinead O'Connor. <laughs> you should say, uh, you know, that girl is stressed. I'm beginning to think she pulled her hair out. <laughs> and then he instantly had this look in his eyes like, shit, I shouldn't have given that to Gary. I, I, was, I was a keeper. <laughs> but all of it was as exciting as it gets. Yeah. And so after the show, R.E.M. is there. And I said to Gary, you should ask them to be on the Larry Sanders show. And he's like, I don't ask people directly. There's people who do that. I'm not I'm walking up to a band. <laughs> I'm like, Gary, you just killed. You're like the right. big man tonight. They'll definitely say yes, and that would be incredible. He's like, fine. And... Uh, this is what happened. Aryam's walking. Aryam. Hey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you guys want to be on the Larry Sanders show? Uh, we love, we love to have you. And Michael Sykes does this. Or I can go fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and then Gary was, Gary was so mad at me for making him ask and then at the party like you know Peter Buck's like oh, I know he's such an asshole <laughs> Michael Stipe is a nightmare I'm so sorry um, but that's when I got to know Gary and Gary was you know the first person to talk to me about Buddhism and spirituality he started giving me these books the first one he gave me was a book called uh, How to Turn Problems into Happiness and the premise was like a very simple premise. It was, it was just uh, when something bad happens, you should just be grateful that you have an opportunity to fix something about yourself. So if something bad happens, you might learn patience or gratitude or fortitude or something. And I, I you know, as a non-practicing Jew, uh, just because my parents, the only religion I had as a kid was my mom would say, nobody said life was fair. That, that was all. That was the whole religious lesson of life. It was very uh, impactful to have someone to say, hey, here's a spiritual idea that 
you could use in your life. And uh, did you have those talks with Gary about Buddhism yeah, and well, his I, beliefs? Uh, meditation. You know, he was always meditating. And I went and I meditated uh, in his house with him and a, and a monk once. Yeah. How was that? It was odd. Who know? won? Who won the meditation? Well, when I first, I first took, <laughs> I, I first took Gary to yoga. Yeah. I, I, I guess I introduced Gary to both yoga and boxing, which is an odd combination to have introduced them to. And I, I took him to yoga, and we came out, and I said, "How'd you like?" And he said, "I think I beat the woman next to me," <laughs> which I thought was funny. And, and uh, we boxed in. Bob Dylan's gym in, yeah. in Santa Monica, which is underneath a synagogue. So there, there's possibly a boxing gym under this <laughs> right here. John Prine is underneath <laughs> here boxing. And he used to say that, uh, you know, he took, a, he took a wrong turn, he made a left, uh, uh, but he, he took out the rabbi in three rounds. <laughs> yeah. So you told him about boxing. He got very obsessed with boxing. He was obsessed with to boxing. To the point where, like, on stage doing stand-up, he would do yeah. this, and we're like, what is he doing? But what do you think he liked about boxing? Well, I think, I think it, was, it was, you know, his own fear. Like, there was a certain amount of physical fear that he was confronting, and there was the, the sense in which, I mean, any boxer will tell you that you're fighting against, like, the ultimate version of your opponent. Like, in your mind, the other person knows all your weaknesses, mm -hmm. knows exactly where you want to be, and is going to hit you in that spot. Yeah. So I think he was, he was interested in, in that kind of projection, you know, from himself uh, of his own shadow and his own fear and trying to overcome that and, and to see into to others, not, not in a violent way because he wasn't really into the hitting part of it. Yeah. He liked the presence of it, that you have to be present if someone's trying to punch you in the face. Yeah, he liked that and he, he liked the, um, the courage, I think, because I think he had, you know, questions about his own courage sometimes, as yeah. we all do, and I think... Uh, being in the ring uh, maybe answered some of those for him. I remember I was his corner man yeah. once, and it, and it was ridiculous because they, you know, he, he was supposed to fight uh, a guy, you know, kind of his age and stature, but that guy fell asleep or something and, and, <laughs> and didn't make the, the fight. So they, they brought in this kid who was like 6'4", and he was in great shape, and, uh, and Gary came back from the first round and he was, he was breathing so hard he was kind of like, there was flecks of saliva coming, like a horse. <laughs> and, and all I could say, all I could say was, this is a situation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't, I, there what was- What happened a, in the next round? I, it was, I don't know. It was, you know, it, we weren't really hitting each other in yeah. the face. I mean, it was all body shots. So, you know, yeah. he wasn't in danger of, getting hurt and the, and the other guy knew that he was younger and bigger and mm -hmm. you know but he was an athlete he was he, he was a better athlete than you'd imagine yeah and he was yeah. a good basketball player and, and a great ping pong player yeah weirdly great ping pong player now yeah. one thing i noticed you know when i was going through all of his stuff is his brother had cystic fibrosis and died when gary was 10 and his brother was 13 and his brother had this uh pen pal in japan so this is like 1958 59 when that was a big deal, to know someone in Japan. And then when Gary's brother died, Gary took over the pen pal relationship. And then at some point during high school, he came and spent a semester with their family. And in the photos, you start seeing Buddhas and things. And I always wondered oh, if that's that where, where he from? learned about Buddhism. You know, I feel like you talked to Gary way more than me. I had a little bit of a... Uh, 
almost like a father-son relationship at times with Gary, but I would assume in his life and just his daily problems and his relationships, you probably had more of those conversations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, Gary would get obsessive about certain things, and I think he processed it with all his friends, you know, and he would go round and round yeah. on certain things. But uh, his his advice was, I can't remember any of it, but it was always good. I mean, it's, it's, it's practical advice, yeah. you know, which he wouldn't listen to for himself. Yeah, that was the key yeah. to the whole thing. He gave great advice yes. and liked to give advice. Yes, he did. And was terrible at taking any advice. <laughs> and but the way he would not take your advice, and it was the same across the board, and I'm sure he said this to you a thousand times if he said it once, was judge your instincts are right. Your instincts are right on. Yeah. And then I'm not going to listen to you. <laughs> he had, then he had a whole run of a page where he was trying to write jokes about... I have a hospital bed. And then he was just writing every possible joke you could be, I have a hospital bed in my house. I have a hospital bed in my house. I have anesthesia if I need it. I have, right. you know, there are nurses ready to save me. Right. And he would just like list every uh, possibility for it. Um, but he really was an amazing joke writer. And a lot of his jokes have become almost generic jokes because they were perfect jokes. Like he, yeah. wrote, he wrote the joke, I have a mirror above my bed which says, Objects in mirror are larger than they appear. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, it's hacky now, but in 1978. Right. <laughs> yeah. But as, as you know, uh, and, and what I think I, I learned from him, and, I, and I'm sure you did too, was uh, the jokes for him were, uh, came from character. I yes. mean, that was, that was the important part. So when, when he was writing drama or comedy or writing dramatic stuff it was the funniest coming from the character and if it's just a joke yeah he's not going to go for it it's got to be the joke from that guy or the joke from that woman yeah that makes sense that's a perfect intro to our number really? three jokes we have a little video of some of gary's jokes oh we do yeah this is well produced this night david i know you don't realize <laughs> that i prepared i know i must sound like your mother you're not married why not well, you know, this is what I talk about currently on stage. I mean, Music, uh, they're identifying with it. You want to know the truth? Listen, yeah. I'm still using it to find out about truth and myself. And I go out and I talk about these things to an audience. And I'm still wondering if everybody's going through these things, if I'm going through them alone, if all relationships are difficult. So now I find it interesting where the audience connects and where they don't. And it seems that we all pretty much have the same you problems. Mean they connect by their laughter. Yes. As long as I've been doing stand-up, I've talked about dating. Now I'm involved in a relationship because I figured, hey, what could be worse than dating? So, <laughs> no, and I'm very loyal in a relationship. You know, any relationship, even when I go out with my mom, I don't look at other moms, you know? I, I don't go, ooh, 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 I wonder what her macaroni and cheese tastes like. <laughs> even when I'm playing with my friend's dog, I feel like I'm cheating on my dog. I swear to God, I, I feel like I'm home with there's dog hair all over me. My dog goes, where the hell have you been? <laughs> you go, I was at the barber shop. This is human hair. I swear, all right, I threw the ball once. <laughs> and I'm trying to make this relationship work because, you know, I, I think that's the key to the whole, whole thing. You know, I think you date for a while, you're in a relationship, eventually in your life you have to get married because you just have to at some point in your life. You have to, that's how I feel. That's probably what I'll say at the ceremony. I'll probably go, 
I have to. No, no. It's I do, Gary. No, I have to. Trust me, it's an internal pressure. I'll, I'll explain it to you at the reception. I... A friend of mine said, you should get married, Gary. You'll get a lot of new comedy material out of it. Which, that's a huge risk. What if I don't? <laughs> then what? Honey, not one funny thing in 10 years, honey. Not one funny thing. I'll be suing on those grounds, you know? Your Honor, she hasn't said a funny thing in 10 years. Gary, Gary, I've seen your act. You'll get everything. And it's not like marriage doesn't present its own set of problems. I mean, I had a friend of mine got married and he called me up and he says, my wife pays more attention to the new baby than she does to me, all right? I said, it seems to me you gotta understand the baby is a blood relation to your wife, right? I mean, that's her son, basically. You're some guy she met in a bar, all right? <laughs> she knows it, the kid knows it. I'm sure they have a good laugh about it when you're at work. <laughs> Any questions to this point? <laughs> Maybe we should open it to questions. That's the transition. Yeah, See yeah. how we produce that? Questions, yes. Anyone have a question uh, they want to ask? Right there. Um, Why didn't Gary translate to film? You want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it's hard to say. Uh, it's very hard to say. I, I would argue that he, that he did, and the, the audience didn't follow or find him. You know, it wasn't it, it wasn't really anything to do with Gary's work. I mean, it, maybe the the right project didn't happen. Uh, I think what planet are you from was just a just kind of a, a misfire in a way. Um, yeah, Gary had this idea that he wanted to do a, a movie about a guy sent to Earth to impregnate a woman, and it's, it's part of a scheme to take over the planet. And then the joke is that when he gets to Earth, it's really hard to get anyone to have sex with him. <laughs> and so he has to get in a relationship with someone in order to impregnate them, and so he has to learn about relationships to pull off the mission, which is kind of a great yeah. idea. At some point in the process, it just, the tone wasn't exactly Gary's tone. It, it, you know, it's hard to know exactly why it didn't work. It should have been probably a grittier movie and it was kind of a glossy, goofier yeah. comedy. Big but what, studio comedy. And he um, hired Mike Nichols to direct it and that's everyone's dream, to work with Mike Nichols. We all worship Mike Nichols and Gary had a certain process, which is he would be tortured, he would rewrite constantly, he would rewrite on the set all day long. And I think Mike Nichols was just not up for that. I think he probably wanted an easy gig. He was collecting a huge check. And I, you know, people have said to me that, and I don't know if this is accurate, but someone said to me that Mike Nichols was kind of like Gary, but found a way to present to the world that he was this very dignified, intellectual guy. And that when he looked at Gary, maybe he saw 
what he really felt like on the inside, this kind of tortured, neurotic Jewish man. And that there was something about Gary that really bugged Mike Nichols. And after the first day of shooting, he watched the dailies and he just decided that Gary wasn't a star and it wasn't working. And he just mailed it in and wrapped every day at 4.30 and didn't let Gary do a lot of takes. And Gary felt abused. He didn't understand even what was going on. He just was like, this guy wants to go home every day by five o'clock and I want to fix the script. And he keeps telling me the script is perfect. And it's a really a, a nightmarish situation f for Gary. And in his journals, he wrote about it. And what I think was beautiful about Gary is in his journals, he, he said, you know, this is not going to work out and you can't torture yourself. You just have to go through the process and hope it, it's okay. And, uh, and that is what happened. And then I think it made him afraid to try again. And, after I, that. and I think he really wanted to uh, be a different kind of actor. Uh, once, he had, once he had finished the show, he really wanted to transform himself, be a transformative type of actor and hide, not hide his, his feelings, but hide within a character, you know, and, and not be close to what Gary or Larry was. You know, he wanted, he wanted to be that kind of actor yeah. and that was just his, his path. That's what he was going after. So he wasn't necessarily pursuing the kind of success that you may associate with him in television in the film afterwards. He was, he was kind of pursuing his own vision of himself as an actor and not as a star or not as a, a popular thing, I think. Is yeah. that fair to say? Well, it's hard to know because you might say he really mined his soul in his two TV shows yeah. and he didn't have a lot more to offer at that time. I remember I asked him if he wanted to follow up the Larry Sanders show with a show where he plays a billionaire. And I said, we should do a show where like you're like Sumner Redstone or Rupert Murdoch and you live at the beach and you're single and you own both like a movie studio and the news. Like you own everything, but you're just kind of alone at the beach. And I sent him all the biographies of all the, the titans of media. And he's just like, no, nah, I, I, yeah, I, I can't. I'm just too tired. Yeah. And he was also getting sick. He had a thyroid problem that he didn't know he had. And so it's hard to know why he didn't do more because he was having a medical problem that he wasn't aware of that was slowing him down. And, and he was also beaten down a little bit by the lawsuits that we talk about in the, in the documentary. But it, it is sad because he was so funny and when you would bring him a script and go, hey, what's wrong with my script? He knew yeah. and he could fix it and tell you. And I think he enjoyed that because there was no pressure in fixing my script. He didn't have to worry about the world judging it. But if it was his work... It was life or death. Well, but, right, right after the, the show ended, I, we, we tried to work on a script together, like, like he wanted to write something. And I would show up at his house, as you know, and, and then you know, hours would go by and we wouldn't do anything. You know? yeah. And after about three months of that, I just, I just said, well, you know, I'll just have to do something on my own and you know, yeah. whatever. But he, he had, or we had two really fun ideas. One was about a, a, like a middle-aged guy who for some reason has to check into a, a retirement village and he becomes like the stud of the retirement <laughs> village. <laughs> and that would have been him, I think. And, and uh, the other was where he was, uh, this might have been an idea that you guys were working on where he dies and, and goes to God and he's having his interview with God and God says, well, you're, you're kind of a scumbag. You did this and you did that and you did and this before, things before defending your life. And the Gary character says, 
what are you talking about, God? When was the last time you were down there? Do you know what it's like down there? You think I'm a bad guy? I'm a good guy. He says, go down there and see what, what you can do. So God goes down into the world and, you know, becomes a drug addict and starts <laughs> and stuff like that. So that was, that was like the two ideas that we were supposedly working on, but we never, we never got any work done. Yeah. And he was just, I think he was, honestly, either he was burnt out or he just didn't want to fucking work with me, you know. Yeah. It was, it was, he just wanted to talk with you for three months. Yeah. And, and so at some point he started doing stand-up again. He was trying to figure out a new way to do stand-up, but he was still, you know, having health difficulties. So I would do these shows at Largo, and I would just bring him on stage, and we would just talk. And he would be funny and sometimes tell some jokes that he, that he wrote. And, and then he got more into it and started writing more jokes. And this is a little uh, compilation of some late, Gary jokes. So what's going on with you? Because 64 is still very super young. Like, why don't you get up on that stage, so, you know? I think that maybe what I do this year. As you grow, you have to find a new purpose and intention for doing what you do or you won't grow. So I'm in the midst of exploring my intention for going on stage. Gary, I used to look much younger than you, and I feel like we look close in age now. Well, I looked in the mirror the other day, and I swear to you, I thought, my God, I'm turning into Gary Shandling. <laughs> and I did not see that coming, Judd. I just did not see that coming, and that's the truth. I was doing a lot of sets with him at Largo, and he would come on stage, and he really was trying to be present and almost wasn't as concerned with the ideas as much as something happening and it's like he didn't care if he had all the jokes he wanted moments to happen on stage and he loved the idea that they didn't laugh at all then got home and slowly put it together i'm sitting there watching cnn when they when they break in and say robin williams uh, passed away and i was frozen i mean really frozen it's horrible and uh, then wolf blitzer says uh 63 is so young and I looked up in hope for a second. <laughs> and I realized they don't say 63 is young except when somebody passes away. No. They don't say 63 is so young to be yeah. still in the NFL. It was like he had to reinvent the form to do it again. And he didn't know how he would reinvent it, but he knew he was not gonna do what he did before. You know, you've known me for so long. And so it's been hard for me to decide if I wanna go back on stage or not back on stage. And this is like splitting the difference. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy to see you, really. I don't get out much. I'm a stay-at-home comedian. And that doesn't mean I'm not any less funny than the comedians who get out and work the clubs. If I was a woman right now, you'd be going, well, good for you, good for you. You're a stay-at-home comedian. That's work. I'm still single. I've been single my whole uh, life. E-Harmony just matched me up with a gun. That's kind of a perfect joke, isn't it? E-Harmony just hooked me up with a gun. Uh, any other questions? Yeah. 
Uh, well, I, I, I'd written this uh, X-Files episode where uh, they're making a movie of a, of, a, of a case that Mulder and Scully investigated. So uh, the, the actors playing Mulder and Scully in the movie version were uh, Gary and Taya Leone, who I was married to at the time. And so they were playing Mulder and Scully in the movie. And, and as I was saying to you backstage, uh, we're shooting the, the teaser, the first part, where Gary's in action. You know, he's fighting these zombies. It's this goofy, you know, thing. So he's got, he's got a gun, and he's, he's firing over his head. Boom, boom, boom. He's an action hero. And, and Gary's very uptight, and, and, and it's, uh, you know, he's doing fine, but it, I can tell he's not comfortable. And I, and I was talking to him, and he said, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, not this, I'm not this guy. I'm not, you know, I'm not a guy with a gun. I'm not an action hero. You know, it's like getting back to your question a little bit. He goes, I'm not Bruce Willis. And, and I said, Bruce Willis isn't Bruce Willis. You know, it's like, this just, you can just go out there and point that thing around, and it's going to look fine, you know. And it was just, it was about his process of, of truth, really. Like, he couldn't. He couldn't fake that. If he didn't feel it, if he couldn't find his way to it honestly, spiritually, artistically, whatever, if he could not see himself doing that honestly, then he was going to be uncomfortable acting it, and he wasn't going to just fake it. Or he would because he knew there was time constraints and we were going to have to shoot the scene, but he wasn't ever going to be comfortable in it. And it was, it was heartbreaking and, and beautiful, and I appreciated it. I didn't share his concern you know, I didn't see it from the outside looking in that it looked that bad. Yeah. You know? But he felt it from the inside looking out. So it was it was wonderful to spend time with him, to work with him, to act with him. It was also heartbreaking and wonderful in, in all the ways it is to direct these imperfect beings that we get involved with, these actors, you know, when they come in with their all their shit. Yes. You know, their insecurities and shit like well, that. People are Take it away, Judd. What's that? Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, people, you know, are interesting because they're you know, complicated and wounded. And I think a lot of people who've been through things are emotionally tuned in and they feel a lot and are able to express that in ways that other people aren't. So you wind up working with a lot of brilliant people like Gary, you know, who is just a big ball of of everything. And it's all intertwined. It's like you can't just say, hey, give me the Gary that gives me this. Yeah. You, you get the whole Gary, you know, and that's... The, the, the best people are, are like that. And I remember we, we shot a scene where he and Taya fall into a casket and then, uh, you know, they, they're going to share a kiss. Mulder and Scully are in the movies are finally going to kiss. And, and I, I shot this scene and then we show the scene uh, in, in the premiere. So now I, I haven't looked at the clip on a big screen. I've only seen it on the monitor. Yeah. And we've got it, we've got it up and I've chosen the moment. And... When it's, how big is the screen? When it's 80 feet wide, as Gary pulls away, there's a strand of spittle. <laughs> and it's only a five second clip. And the audience, which was bigger than this in a premier movie theater, we watched, you know, as you know, we watched that clip a hundred times. And every time that spittle came, <laughs> like there was that same reaction, you know. And did you CGI out the spit? No, I don't think so. I don't think we could afford it back then. I uh, you CGI'd out spit. Well, my wife uh, shared a kiss with Matthew Broderick and the Cable Guy, and not just a spit, but a spit bridge. Well, that's what it was. It was the Veranzano <laughs> spit bridge, and I was like, oh my God, Bueller's spit in your mouth. 
<laughs> How much did that cost you? No, I had to remove, I had to switch tapes. It was worth it. It, it was, was not removable, it was so <laughs> enormous. <laughs> Gary uh, and I, when we would work at Larry Sanders show, we generally got along well, but one of the only fights uh, we got into was he wanted to do something about Larry Sanders at Christmas. And I went, but he's a Jew. He's like, how do you know? <laughs> I'm like, are you serious right now? I never said Larry was a Jew. Larry Sanders isn't necessarily a Jewish name. I'm like, Gary, you're the Jewiest man in the world. You think Larry Sanders isn't a Jew? And he got so mad at me. And I didn't, I didn't even understand. I'm like, what's happening right now? Are we really having a conversation about if he could not be a Jew? <laughs> but then Gary was so funny and smart that he just put that in the show that he wouldn't admit he was a Jew. And then he just put it in the show. And then someone said to Rip Torn in, in the show, uh, what religion is Larry? And Rip Torn goes, he's a talk show host. <laughs> he's a what? He's a talk show host. <laughs> And then in a later episode, Stiller, Stiller called him. This is like two seasons later. Stiller is like going, fuck you, you self-hating Jew. And, and Gary goes, you think I'm Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, other, the other fight we got into was about, I wrote an episode where uh, Larry has to leave and Hank has a new girlfriend and she leaves her kid with Hank. And when she comes back, Hank has her kid on a leash. <laughs> right? And, and, I, and Gary's like, that's, that's too broad. And I'm like, Gary, have you been to the mall? Like, people have kids on leashes. It's like a weird thing. And he's like, no, it's too much. I'm like, Gary, have you ever left the house? This is not like so broad. I mean, it exists in the world. And it makes sense that Hank would be lazy and like tie the kid to his desk or something. And we just got in such a big fight about it. And then like years later, he was doing the DVD extras. Yeah. And we shot this thing for it. And I said, you know, the writers get mad at you because sometimes you would reject good ideas. And he's like, like what? I'm like, like the leash. <laughs> and on the DVD, we have, a, the, we have the fight about the leash and he gets so mad at me again as if it was that day. <laughs> uh, but he was very hard to write with because it was like trying to paint with Picasso. It's like if you had to write, paint with Picasso, at some point Picasso would be like, what the fuck are you doing on your side? <laughs> what is that? And that's how it felt writing with him. Like, he's a genius, and I'm just trying to not make him mad because the bar is so high and the work is so personal. There's no way to really know what he would think about any type of the behavior because it was specific to his mind. So a lot of writers, you know, would get very frustrated. You know, half the writers just knew he was a genius and were like, I don't care if this is hard because I get to be around this guy. And the other half were like, Fuck Gary. <laughs> and that's what the writer's room was like. There were a lot of people who were mad and we would have a debate. Would you rather work with a genius who's a nightmare or someone who was mediocre but was really nice to be around? And then one guy, you know, said, you know, I'd rather work with, uh, you know, someone that's hard to be around. 
And, and that guy actually had just worked at the Cosby show. But as you say, it was, it's so personal that he wouldn't, he, he wasn't an easy mentor in that way sometimes because if you didn't get it, he just assumed you were never going to get it. Well, it was also that if you didn't get it on some level, it felt like he thought you were trying to destroy him. Right. That was which personal. is a different type of thing. And I think for some people, their self-esteem is so tied into the success of their creative work that when you mess up or you can't support it in the way that they need, they have a fight or flight response and they really feel like you're trying to ruin their entire life. It's not just a joke or a, or a story. Uh, anyone else, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, the question is basically, what was the point of writing the book? Uh, and it is, it's, it's probably just an expression of grief and hoarding. You, you, you know, I mean, Gary taught me so much that on one level I thought it would mean a lot to Gary for all those lessons he tried to teach me and other people to exist in a form where forever, if someone picked up the book, that they could learn the things that his friends learned from him. And it's also, I think, like when you're sad, you don't want to end the relationship. So the, you know, it's like talking with Gary all day long, putting together the documentary and and the memorial. That's why I'm working on a CD-ROM right now. <laughs> yeah, a, a hologram. <laughs> I know. I want to open up for Gary's hologram all across the nation. Uh, but you know, when I went through all his stuff, I just thought this is incredible. And as a comedy fan. You know, when I was a kid, I used to look at this book. It was called The Marx Brothers Scrapbook. And I thought, wow, I, I wish this was laid out in a way for people to see because some of it is really funny. It's also an oral history of Gary. And then there's these journals where, you know, throughout his life, and I don't know if he learned this in, in like a self-help class or something. Sometimes I, I think that that's what happened. His journals aren't him bitching because a lot of times people lately write in journals to get the dark stuff out of your head. I mean, that's what I was always told. To write down the shit that's bothering you before bed, you'll sleep better. But that's not what Gary was doing. Who, Gary was... Who, who gave you that advice? Um, Burgess Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like a... <laughs> Kid, you gotta get a journal. Uh, <laughs> oh, you were talking about photos before? I have this strange... Maybe you can explain it to me, but I have a photo, or I've seen it in your book, it's me, John Stewart, and Charles Nelson Riley. I just thought, how often does that happen? Never. And, and like to me, I wanted people to see that there was a moment where Gary Tukovany and Charles Nelson Riley hung out. John Stewart. And John Stewart. Yeah, uh, but so what I noticed in the journals was he was always saying positive things to himself, almost like he was trying to connect with his higher voice. So instead of just bitching, most of his journal was. You know, on one page it says, let go, drop the story, give what you didn't get, give more, love more. And I just thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I think if I was, you know, a young person, I would have never thought that that's how my mind was supposed to work and that it could really impact people that that existed somewhere. So that's, that's the other beautiful. reason why I put it together. Anyone else? 
Can I get a copy of the book? I wanted to read something from it, but I don't even have a copy of it. You know, there's a bunch of things in here. I, I, you've kind of gone through it, yeah. you know, deeply, but, you know, there were a few things that I found somewhat astounding in, in his notes that, uh, you know, I just thought it was, it, that it was so different than the way comedians think. So this is from 1977. He's, at this point, uh, not a good comedian. He's just starting out, and he's clearly scared. And so he's trying to figure out stage fright, and so he's just writing about stage fright to get over it. And so it says, thoughts. Stage fright is caused by not living in the now. It is caused by living in the future. Will I play my role well? Will I be liked? What will I say? Yet if I just get up and do whatever Gary Shandling would do, there's no reason to be anxious because whatever I do will be Gary Shandling. And that is who I am. I am who I am. There's no reason to be afraid of what people think because I am being me and all I have is me. What I do, who I am, is all I have. I do what I do. What the hell difference does it make what they think? What I think and am is my center. This is another one. It's just a weird observation for a comedian. He wrote, listening to Elvis today on the radio, I realize he can sing any song and it's still Elvis. The material doesn't matter, it's Elvis. People don't think, oh, he's singing that song. Perry Como sings that. No one cares, no one realizes they wanna hear Elvis. So it is with the material, it doesn't matter if it's like someone else, it is merely a vehicle to be Gary. The more you're Gary and the less you worry about the song or your singing, the more you'll be yourself. Did you think like this as a young person? I don't even understand it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really interesting. When he would go on The Tonight Show, he would psych himself up, you know, and he, he would talk about, can I be present with, um, with Johnny? Like, can I be funny in the moment with Johnny? And he says, you know, when you're on The Tonight Show, it says, tonight show in a couple of days, just be Gary, don't let material clog up your head on panel. In a club, there's no pressure because you feel you can handle any situation and will come up with the material when you need it. Also, if you're willing to take a risk, there's no reason to sit at panel with Johnny if you're just gonna do jokes. It's not you. The reason you're doing this is to be yourself. Just relax and have fun, which, you know, I think it's a lot like athletes. You know, athletes talk about like being in flow. Like when you see Michael Jordan, there's, it's almost like he's not thinking. And Gary talks in the book about doing a simultaneous, simultaneous performance and non-performance. He's like applying Zen in the art of archery to sitting, talking to Johnny Carson and assuming that when the time comes, he'll just be funny and trust that that will happen. Yeah, well, I'm sure you had many conversations with Gary that had 20, 25-second pauses in yeah. them. Yeah, he was a big pauser. And he was just... <laughs> and I, you know, I guess he was trying to find that spot there, like yeah. trying to find, you know, I'm, I'm sure he was in touch with some reaction, but he didn't yeah. quite trust that reaction first, so he was waiting 
for the second one or the third or the hundredth one. Well, he's, he kept saying that life is in the silences and that everyone is talking too much. Yeah. And I wanted to show a clip of him from the uh, Comedians in Cars. You know, Gary did these DVD extras where he would interview comedians and it inspired Jerry Seinfeld. It was one of the things that inspired him when he did Comedians in Cars is they would do these funny interviews for Gary's DVDs years before. And it was really important to Gary when he did Comedians in Cars that he did well. And he wanted to express certain things he'd never expressed to the public before about his life. So this was a piece from Gary's Comedians in Cars. Seinfeld gave me all the raw footage, so we kind of re-edited it oh, yeah. to expand on some things Gary was talking about. You know, David Brennan passed away last year. All that material, he worked so hard on it. It's just gone. It doesn't mean anything to anyone anymore. It took so much work to create it. That material and your material is purely a vehicle for you to express your spirit and your soul and your being. And that's why you're fantastic. So you keep so it. So it doesn't have any value beyond that? It doesn't have any value beyond you expressing yourself spiritually in a very soulful, spiritual way. It's why you're on the planet. God, open up the sunroof. What year is this? You know, because he was, he was uh, out of the limelight in, in a lot of ways. And people were uh, wanting to know what he's doing, where was he, you know. There was a lot of questions. And um, this was the forum to address all that stuff. I, I'm so happy to see you. That's all this is about. It's uh, so honest. Well, well there's a few things that the show is about, and one of them is friendship. Can you give me one more compliment? I can't. That I came up with a show that is such a perfect format for guys like us, and particularly you. You know what, partly where I got it from? Our walk in Central Park that day doing DVD extras for the Larry Sanders show. Man. You evidently have not been watching my show, Comedians in Hospitals Getting Surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I thought of that last night. Comedians in hospitals getting surgery? Yeah, because I, I was going to tell you, you know, I was in the hospital getting uh, surgery. But if someone asked me, do you think Gary had that line, or do you think he just said it in the moment? That's why I'm sharing it. I, I would tell you, I, I... Can't tell. I can't tell. Yeah. And I'm pretty good at this. But let me just say this. In the old days, you and I would take those walks, and those were, those were little soul walks we took. We were both in the throes of handling these very challenging jobs that we had. And we were doing them at the same time. This is part of the key of our relationship. And I've told you this before. I need to hear you say, it's a fucking minefield. <laughs> because when I say it's a fucking minefield, they go, and Shanling's complaining. I don't know why that is. Thanks, Kara. Thank you. I'm telling you, the truth of us just do talking right now. Right. Is, I appreciate it. Me too. That's all that matters. I agree. Okay, buddy. It's it's like how many people can sit down and, and, and talk this way? The guys who defuse the bombs. Those, those two guys. You think when they sit down and have a cup of coffee, you think it's quiet a lot? I think it's this. <laughs> They're both shaking like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, I went in to get a CT scan on last Wednesday, and I go in there, and the guy says, Hey, Gary Shandling, I'm a big fan. I, he said, I did a CT scan a year ago, 
of you. He said, do you have cancer? I said, no. And he said, oh, good, so you're still alive. He said, because I was watching the news, and it seems like if you had passed away, I would have heard about it on the news. And I said, well, I don't know, man. I mean, uh, I don't know if they would have broken in or anything, but, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what to say to the guy. He kept at it. He said, oh, so that's so great that Gary Shandling's still alive. It's, uh, you know, it's sad for us because Gary was just so sharp and so funny and he was struggling in a lot of ways at the same time. So as a friend, you knew he was struggling, but you didn't really know exactly what was happening if he was just emotionally having a hard time or he was sick because he had pancreatitis and thyroid issues. And, and uh, so it's such a beautiful thing to see him express all that. that and I think it, one of the reasons why I did the book and the documentary is I feel like these were the ideas that he wanted to share near the end of his life, that these ideas about spirituality and friendship, and uh, that's why it's such a big deal that people have responded in such a big way to it, because I do think it's what he wanted to get out there. Well, I think with, with the documentary that you did so beautifully, I think so many people would come up to me and say, oh, I saw that documentary about your friend or you know, about Shanling. I had no idea. I had no idea. That was the constant refrain yeah. of what kind of a person he was, you know. And I think you've done a, a great service as a friend, aside from, you know, the service of making this book and sharing it with people, but you've done a, a beautiful act of friendship uh, in the last couple of years, and it's, uh, it's stunning, actually. Thank you. We'll take a couple of more questions and then uh, we'll move on with our lives. What lesson have you learned from Gary that you have implemented in your own life? Oh, yeah. <sighs> gee, I don't know. Uh, do you have one? There's one that like is in the book that I you know I quote a lot, but I'm always just surprised that like he just wrote these things to himself. You know, like he's just alone writing these beautiful ideas. Uh, just on a piece of paper, it just said this. Maybe your comedy is a natural gift to be given to others with joy to help them through this impossible life and you sharing it with no desire of getting anything. That's a good one to think about. Did you learn that? I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> I think uh, I always come back to that image. Uh, you know, Gary had a, he had a ham radio set up as a kid, and he actually had it in his house as an adult. He had this yeah. big tower up in his house. And if you can imagine this possibly Jewish little kid in Tucson, yeah. imagine little Gary Shandling in Tucson, Arizona, and then imagine that that kid, yeah, he gets on a ham radio because he wants to talk to the rest of the world. And... I just think of that like, I just extrapolate from that for all of us, you know, that, that we're all kind of operating or, you know, when I think about Gary, little Gary and big Gary, getting on that ham radio and talking to some trucker in India, some, tr yeah. some guy in China who happens to be on the radio. And it's like, well, that's, that's really all we all are. You know, we're just our singular voices trying to reach out, you know, to other singular voices. Well, I, I think he really felt like we're all connected and, and the ham radio, which is something I think he did 
because he felt so engulfed by his mom after his brother died, like suddenly all eyes were on him, that he disappeared into his room and he would just talk to people around the world. And I think it, it, it's part of what his belief system was, which is we all need to be there for each other and love each other and help each other or we're in trouble. Like we, we're fooling ourselves to think that we're not connected. And so part of dropping your ego, which is what he talked about all the time, and dropping your story was to drop everything so that you could just you know, be love and be connection uh, with other people. And I wanted to end, uh, end this with just a clip of this weird moment uh, where Gary and I are talking to the spiritual uh, person Ram Das. And so Ram Das he was the person who wrote the book Be Here Now. And I guess he was doing a podcast or something. And someone asked me to to be on it. And I said, hey, Gary, you know, I'm going to talk to Ram Das. You want to come talk to Ram Das? And, and in the middle of talking to him, Gary just showed up at my house. <laughs> and so in just some side room of my house, we're like talking to Ram Das for about 25 minutes. And it was, it was really beautiful. And he said two or three things in this conversation that I try to focus on that really are life-changing. Uh, but I also thought, if you watch this, I've never seen Gary look happier. It just seems to confirm all of his beliefs and, and he's really at peace when talking to Ram Das. So let's take a look. I wrote a joke that said, uh, you know, I can meditate to the point where my mind is blank, uh, but then there's no one to blame. You know, I did that joke on stage and of course it's not really a joke. And, but then this is, this is the luck of my life. Judd Apatow says to me, Hey, I'm Skyping with Ram Dass tomorrow. Come on over. Who's that? That's Gary Shandling just popped in. Gary, <laughs> lean in so we can see you there. Do you have any clue who I am? Yeah, I know who you are. You look great. You just look great. Thank you. So I, I don't know what... Did Gary I... just asked you that because he wants you to tell him how he looks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been meditating for 35 years, so I can meditate until... My mind is pretty empty, pretty blank. But then there's no one to blame. <laughs> now I realize I have an audience for my meditation material. <laughs> Humor is great in the spiritual work. It gets you there. Yeah. I'd say in here, not here. Yeah. Here is uh, serious. Here is the judge. Here is the yeah. And down here, yeah. There's really humor down here. Bodhisattva with is no one is enemy. No one is enemy. No one. The the true enemy is the ignorance. The true enemy is the ignorance. Yeah. All my journey is, is to be authentically who I am, not trying to be somebody else under all circumstances. Have you found confusion? It takes a, sure, there isn't, the whole world is confused because they're trying to be somebody else. To be your true self, is, it takes enormous work. Then we could start to look at the problems in the world, but instead ego drives it. Ego drives the world, ego drives the problems. So. You have to work in an egoless way. This egolessness, which um, is the key to being authentic, is a, a battle. Everything 
is part of an ocean of love. Go within. There's loving awareness. Loving awareness. And there's no time in now. My body lives in time. My uh, psychology lives in time. But I don't live in time. I live in this moment. This moment. This, this. Yeah, I understand. Thank you guys uh, for coming out. Thank you, David, for Thank doing you. this Thank with me. We'll be signing some books in the back. Really appreciate all your support for All Things Gay. Good night. David Duchovny, Judd Apatow, thank you so much for joining us here on the TalkHouse podcast. Huge thanks to Brian Kelly and everyone else at Murmur and also to Community Bookstore in Park Slope, Brooklyn. If you're in New York, stop by and pick up. It's Gary Shandling's book at the store. They've been around since 1971 and it's beautiful. And if not, go to their website, pick it up there. Yeah, which has probably not been around since 1971. Uh, probably like, you know, 2001. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Subscribe to the podcast. We have some amazing upcoming episodes, including, as Elia mentioned at the top of the show, another episode from the Murmur Lit series featuring George Saunders and Dana Spiota. And Elliot, you've got some biggies coming up too, right? Yeah, man, including uh, the band's Robbie Robertson and his Golden Messenger. It's been an amazing year so far. You know, we've had Dev Hines from Blood Orange with Beverly Clint Copeland, Michael Shannon, Jason Arducci, Susie Quattro and Didi Sparks, Nick Thune and Damon Girado. It's been stacked. It really has, man. So listeners, feel free to subscribe and uh, rate and review the podcast. Five stars will be accepted. Our researcher for today's show is Reese Higgins. And this episode was recorded by Justin Rabovsky and our co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi. The theme song for this episode and all episodes was composed and performed by The Range. And for some fun pictures from this event, definitely check out at TalkHouse across social platforms. Till next week, I'm Ellie Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson. Peace. And Gary Shandling. <laughs>